0: No condemnation, now or ever. Please turn to Romans chapter 8. 20th message in the Romans series. We worked our way through Romans chapter 7. And uh, I believe it was a profitable study. I'll just review it just a little bit here so that we get the full grasp of it. Because if you understand Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8 becomes even greater. And especially verse number 1 of Romans chapter 8. Luther called this chapter, Romans 8, the masterpiece of the New Testament. And uh, almost all commentators I read had something to say like that. Uh, Extolling the virtues and the things to be learned here, as we really kind of sum up uh, all of Romans chapters 1 through 7, especially Romans chapter 7, and then move on into high ground here in Romans chapter 8. But let's remember where we were in chapter 7, as we just reviewed two weeks ago, from Romans 7, 13 through 25. And I put it on your outline there, just so you can help refresh yourself. The law shows the Christian our sin, so that we will flee to Christ. There are those that despise the law. There's no reason to despise the law of God. The law of God is good and right. The law of God tells us what is good and right. And if we're talking about the Ten Commandments, we're talking about the law of God that flows from the very nature and person of God Himself. Okay. So the law shows the Christian our sin. So we'll flee to Christ. Of course, that's how we become a Christian, as He transforms our heart and life and enlightens us. So that's the law of work. We don't trust in ourselves, but we see our need of a Savior and every Christian must see himself as lost before he'll come to Christ. That's the work of the law. But the law also has an effect on the lost that never come to Christ, or the lost before they come to Christ. The law will sometimes make men worse, and make them rebel, and do even greater horrible things. The law can do that, because the law has no power in itself. The law can tell you what's right and what's wrong, and men that rebel against what's right and wrong will sometimes rebel all the way, rebel about as far as they possibly can. But I'm glad to tell you one thing: Nobody has ever maxed out their total depravity. It's never happened. Hitler did not max out his total depravity. Can't be done, you know? We could always be worse than we are quantitatively. So, anyway, the law may make men worse as they rebel against it. The law may cause a man or woman, though, to be more restrained in their actions. And for society, that's a good thing. If uh, people are restrained out of fear and become more moral, we're glad for that. But the law can never give power to eternal life. And so something good has happened in a temporal sense for the person and for society at large. But really, um, in the end-grand scheme of things, there's no remedy for sin that have been previously committed, no remedy for sins that are currently being committed, no remedy for sins that will be committed only by the law. They may be less in quantity but still damning to hell, for sure. All the law can do is stand as a judge and point out our sin and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. And then as we went through uh, with the proposition and the belief that uh, Romans 7 is the Christian experience, I won't read these again, you can read them later, use the outline to help you, but in verse 14, there was proof of remaining sin, even as a new creature, I still sin. And uh, that's the sad reality of every single Christian in here, you know. Um, if, if you are perfect and never have sinned any longer in the last, let's say, well, 20 years, you may stand now, and uh, we will ask you the secret of your, your great perseverance, you know. And I don't see anybody standing. Okay, well, yeah, why? Why? Because we sin, we still sin. Okay, and uh, His righteousness imputed to us, but it's not infused into us, so to speak. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. What I mean by that, verse fifteen, proof of Christianity is a new motive, a new motive. We have desires we never had before. We want to love God. We want to serve God. We want to obey God. That is what God has done for us. That's the change that He's made in regeneration. So proof of true Christianity is a new motive. And then proof of true Christianity is a new battle. And this is the battle that you are fighting, and the battle that I'm fighting, Christian friends. If you're lost, you're not fighting a battle. You've already capitulated and given in to the wicked one. Okay? So if you're lost, there's no battle. But for the Christian, true Christian, there's a new battle. A battle we never used to have. We're strugglers, and as Christians, too often we find ourselves falling back into the same old pit with some persistent sin, or just plain remaining sin, and then despising ourselves for it. But that brings us to today, and I will read verse 24, 724, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And wouldn't it be horrible if that was the end of the book of Romans? Just boom. <laughs> Paul quit writing. <laughs> that would be a horrible place to end. No. I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, that law is in a principal sense, okay, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's right. Amen. What a blessing to see that. To come out of the darkness, out of the reality that I still sin, even though Jesus Christ is my Savior and I love Him and He's changed me and great things have happened, I still find remaining sin that causes me to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who will deliver me. And not only He will deliver me, and He will deliver you, Christian friend. Right now, today, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. say, but I deserve condemnation. No. No, you don't. You don't deserve condemnation. Because Jesus Christ took your penalty. You don't deserve condemnation. So this is the great hope. This is the great promise. We shall be absolutely victorious in glory. It's true. But today we're strugglers. Tomorrow we'll be absolutely happy. Tomorrow we'll be absolutely holy. Tomorrow we'll be absolutely perfect. Today we're strugglers, but before God and His throne, because of the work of Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. And then there's a qualification. There's always a qualification. There always is. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ. That's the point. And and the chapter opens that way and the chapter ends that way too. Look at the end of Romans chapter 8 talking about no height, no depth, no nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It begins with in Christ. It ends with in Christ. That's His great work for us. It's all about Him. You know, the Roman Catholic Church um, has a great error, a tremendous error. It's the error that is enough to damn a soul to hell. Uh, there are Christians within the Roman Catholic Church, I believe that there are, but they have, to sub, they have to actually go around their church's own doctrine to be able to do that. They have to believe in Jesus Christ, just like everyone has to believe in Jesus Christ and trust Him alone. If you really follow Roman Catholic doctrine, you can't do that. Because the Roman Catholic Church teaches justification by infused grace. That's what they teach. They teach justification by infused grace. They argue that grace is infused into us by God and the church. So, it must be worked out of us and thereby we actually save ourselves. Now, <laughs> yeah, I know, I took a, a lot of liberty there to, to say it that way, but i just distilled on what they believe. And many of our fr- evangelical friends unfortunately are really kind of saying, you know, Catholic Church is not really so bad. You know, when you really think about what they're doing, it's actually pretty good. And uh, they'll even call the Roman Catholic Church a Christian church. You know, well, You can see why. Because many of our evangelical friends, as we saw in the 10 o'clock hour, um, believe that uh, God gives all men the ability of free will where they can basically save themselves by making a wise choice. Kind of the same thing when you come right down to it. It's just kind of another form of self salvation. No, there's only one savior of sinners the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. I don't think Paul could have even said it stronger. I don't know how he would say it stronger than, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now that's piling up the words so that we see exactly, what what do you you mean, Paul? (laughs) No, we should see it. We should be able to figure out what it is that he's saying to us. You know, no condemnation for my past sins. Justification says, not guilty. We're talking about justification right now. Justification says, not guilty. No condemnation for my present sins, because of justification and the work of Jesus Christ. Not guilty. No condemnation even for my future sins. Not guilty. Well, I've long, it's kind of a long quote, so I wrote it out for you on the outline. It takes up half the outline. But um, I hope that it is profitable to you. I love the book Pilgrim's Progress. Read it many, many times, Uh, even taught through it before, and found it to be one of the most profitable studies I've ever done, outside of the Scriptures. But it's full of Scriptures, why? Um, A tactic that Apollyon, another name for the devil, uses to try to defeat Christian, and discourage him, and have him quit. Is given here. If you know the book, you you know that uh, what Apollyon is saying is basically true. He roars it out to Christian, and it's true. And this is what he says in old English language. I didn't try to change it to Christian. He says, "Thou didst faint at first setting out, when thou wast almost choked in the sluest of spawned. and sluice is a miry pit that uh, that uh, actually Christian or the Christian when he was." when he was pilgrim, fell into. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou should have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose that choice thing. Thou wast almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkst of thy journey and of all that thou have seen and heard, thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory." in all thou sayest and do. Even as you talk about all that God has led you through and helped you through, you just kind of feel a little bit of pride inside of how good you've done. And Christian's response? All this is true, and much more which thou hast left out. But the Prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides... These infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. John Bunyan understood something, didn't he, as he writes this allegory for us. I have obtained pardon. I am not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation. And that's what we're talking about. No condemnation because I'm in Christ. He paid the price. He paid the law's full demands. Nothing is lacking in my salvation. I'm not capable of adding one thing to it or taking one thing from it, because it's not based on my works. I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, and it's based on the work of Christ, and I cannot add to it or subtract from it in justification, how could I lose it? Ah. There's another great error that happens. Oh, Christ will save you, but you've got to keep yourself saved. If it's not my works, and if a remaining sin is not being countered against me, then how could I lose it? And the answer is, I'll lose my salvation the day that Christ fails. I'll lose my salvation the day that Christ sins. Until that day, I'm safe in Him. Because he can't sin, and he can't fail, and he can't fall. Okay. So that's verse number one. Remember the context. We've been talking about the law. The law can no longer condemn you because you're not guilty. That's justification in its simplest terms. But justification is not all that there is. Again, uh, too many, too many um, evangelicals, some evangelicals even do this. And the Catholic Church does it purposely, they conflate justification and sanctification and make them all to be one. Instead of keeping them separate as must be done and will happen in Romans chapter 8, instead of of, uh, keeping them separate from what they are, they conflate it and make them all into one, which becomes self salvation. Okay? So, anyway. Um, just to, to conclude this idea, a Christian wants to obey more than he does obey. A Christian loathes his sin and loathes himself when he sins. A Christian is fundamentally a different creature, a new creature with a new nature. And I came across this illustration from from a, a good, very simple Bible expositor, Stuart Alliot. And I've got to meet Stuart Alliot before, Great, great man. I don't know if he's still with us and, or if he's in glory now, but Stuart Elliott, a great preacher from England, has a whole idea, or actually an illustration that I want to use and borrow from him about um, this principle of being really still a sinner, yet no condemnation. Okay. And what it's like to live in Romans chapter 7 like we do. He says, there's a factory with a lot of men and a lot of old equipment. Okay, so you got the picture, right? There's a factory here, there's men working in it, and there's old equipment. The old manager is fired because the job is not being done properly, and a new one is hired to renovate the factory. Okay, so these things happen. This man has a whole new vision, a whole new purpose. He has dreams and desires and tangible goals. A new era has begun, and you can see it. Different principles govern the main office. Different instructions flow from the main office. But they still have that old machinery that they have to deal with. It doesn't put out quite the quality it should. The machines have a tendency to break down. And if that's not enough, they also have the old employees still to deal with. They have a tendency to keep falling back and doing the things the old way. He has to stir them up and try to remind them of the new ways. They've worked for Adam so long, they keep falling back to Adam's ways, you know. And I hope you can see that uh, the illustration that's being used here, you know. Old machinery still has to be contended with. Old habits that are hard to break. They add up to a host of sins that cause temporary setbacks in our sanctification but cannot touch our justification because we are under new management. So, we're going to move on to verse 2. And as we do that, something begins to happen here in Paul's thinking. So far, very little has been said about the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you noticed that. Actually, I didn't notice that until it was pointed out to me in one of the commentators. But very little has been said. Not, not nothing. They're, the Holy Spirit's been spoken about, but not central. Now that we're talk about sanctification, of course regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll start talking about sanctification very soon. Just a couple verses. The Holy Spirit of course plays a prominent role in all of that. Paul has shifted his focus from justification to sanctification. And in verses 2 through 27, you know, the Holy Spirit is mentioned at least 15 times in these verses. From verse 2 to 27, 15 times. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned 33 times in the entire book. So, we're moving into the Holy Spirit's territory now where He Uh, begins to take the center stage, because we're in Christ, so we have the Holy Spirit. And verse 4 is the key, and we'll end with verse 4, Lord willing, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's the transitional verse that's going to take us into sanctification, how we live, by looking to Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, we have freedom from sin and death, verse 2. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We've said before, and it's very important that we realize that the law as used in the book of Romans uh, has more than one way of being used. It's not always the Ten Commandments that are being spoken about. And here it's very clear that this is the law in a principle form the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of, or principle, of sin and death. So, verse 2 shows us that Christ and the Spirit do not work at cross purposes, but their aims and goals are one. The Spirit of life is just another way of talking about the Holy Spirit who gives life. The law of sin and death our condition before salvation. Sin was our master. Death eternal death, our destination. These are contrasting laws or principles, and the old law or principle leads to death. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now here's the Ten Commandments what the law could not do, the Ten Commandments. But more importantly, here's the Gospel. Did you notice how plainly and strongly the Gospel is preached in just that one verse? Look at it again, it's amazing. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. Here's the Gospel. God did, by sending His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, He condemned sin, in the flesh. And here is really just showing how careful God is as He writes His Word. How particular He is. How He uses just the right word and the right concept. In the likeness of flesh. What if He said that? Son of Son, in the likeness of flesh. Well, then Paul would be a Gnostic. He wouldn't believe that Jesus Christ was flesh and bone and blood. He says, in the likeness of flesh. He looked like a human being, but he wasn't really a human being at all. Something that actually has been taught through the ages and still being taught by some today. In the likeness of flesh would be a tremendous error. But what does it say? In the likeness of sinful flesh... Christ was not a sinful man. But I'll tell you, Christ looked like a regular guy in regards to who He was. And He was just a regular Jewish guy. That's what He looked like. And that's who He was as He walked upon this earth. Of course, He was the Son of God, but veiled in flesh, you see. So that was hidden. You know, I don't like pictures of Jesus myself. I just tell you that that that's not my thing. I don't think they represent Jesus well, and uh, not only that, but um, Jesus is God, and how we're going to make a representation of of him uh, like that? So that's just that I just don't like pictures of Jesus myself because of the second commandment. But I will tell you this: we have some really good artists in the church here that. Uh, kind of amaze me with what they're able to do, and, and painters even. It's just quite incredible. But in a work of art, isn't it always amazing? If it's a religious work of art showing Jesus, you always know who Jesus is. He never looks the same. you know. You know he looks in all different ways. But you know which person it is that's Jesus in that particular work of art. Now, sometimes it's just blatant, they put a halo on him or something like that, okay, which isn't accurate at all. But often it's just that he's the center of the picture. The picture is all focusing around him. Even if he's not right in the middle of the picture, doesn't have to be in the middle of the picture to be the center of the picture, everything's being focused towards him. Okay. Well, you know, that's pretty much the way that it was. Christ when he was walking in a crowd, was often picked out of the crowd. The lady that had the issue of blood, and uh, actually went out and reached the hem of his garment, knew who he was. And so, they did know who he was, and such like that. Uh, I don't think they understood who he really was, because if they understood who he really was, I don't think they could even stand to, to speak to him face to face. They certainly wouldn't have dared to contradict him, and tell him he was wrong, They wouldn't dare have done that if they would have known that they're talking to the Son of God who created the universe and was their creator too, you know. They were most impressed when they heard him, though. And they were often impressed by his miracles. But in spite of all of that, he wasn't really respected that much here on earth. He was in his state of humiliation. theologians talk about Christ in two states. His state of humiliation, while he's here on this earth, and then his state of exaltation, where he is today. And everyone, almost everyone, even to an extent his own disciples, considered him to be a mere man. Occasionally we'd see a burst coming out, like, uh, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says that. But then, not that long after, Peter Christ is telling him, I'm, "I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, they're going to crucify me." Peter takes him aside and says, "You've got to quit talking like that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Did he really fully understand what it was all about? Did he fully understand it? No, not till later, not till later, when the Holy Spirit enlightened their minds fully. My friends, he's no longer in the state of humiliation. If you saw him today, you'd fall down like a dead man. Yeah, John MacArthur, I have to give him credit for this one, because he's the one that said it. Guy told him, I I saw a vision of Jesus. Oh, really? When did you see Jesus? He said, when I, Jesus comes and speaks to me when I'm shaving in the morning. I see him in the mirror. And John MacArthur says, no, that's not true. He says, you can't tell me that it's not true. He said, okay, tell me then. When you see Jesus, do you keep on shaving? Ah. If he really saw Jesus, he wouldn't just keep on shaving and Jesus tell him nice things. No. He would fall down like a dead man if we actually saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. The Apostle John, who dared to lean on Christ's bosom. The Apostle John, who dared to whisper into his ear and say, who is it that's going to betray you? The Apostle John, who was his closest earthly friend, as best as we can tell, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. On the Isle of Patmos, when he saw the risen Christ, he fell down. That tells us what we need to know. And we've just got to get over this cultural thing that happens even in churches that Jesus is my buddy and Jesus is my pal and Jesus is my good friend and me and Jesus got a good thing going you know we we agree with each other on things and <laughs> well the only way you could agree with Jesus is to say you are right you are right you know you know this feel good Jesus it takes a lot of forms. I, I, I'm going to criticize something I'm, I'm seeing on TV. Um, some people are real excited that there's this great witness going forward in these TV commercials that uh, are, are costing millions of dollars, and I've seen them many times. And, and uh, Jesus gets us, you know. Okay, he gets us. Well, Thomas, when he saw the risen Lord, says, my Lord and my God, you know. So, Jesus was a real man, and He lived as a real man, but there was one massive difference. He never sinned. He never sinned. And He even dared to stand before the crowd and say, which of you convinces me of sin? Nobody took Him up on it that day. Nobody took Him up on it. Verse 4 is the transition verse. I'm going to have to close with a little bit of grammar here. Because the Greek grammar and the English grammar, which is just like it, really. Different words are being used, um, different um, parts of speech, so to speak. But the grammar is going to tell us a lot. And it's going to transition us very, very well to where we need to be. So verse number 4, let me read it. That the righteous requirement <coughs> excuse me that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And now we've moved to sanctification. Paul was talking about where we live as a Christian in Romans seven. And now he's going to begin to talk about where we live today in Romans 8 as a Christian. And the way that it's said is perfect. And the tenses and the parts of speech that are used are perfect. And the New King James and the ESV both recognized that. Most, most good translations recognize it and translate it properly. There are some paraphrases where you can really go wrong in the book of Romans. There are some paraphrases that exist, and you can just go wrong, because they put their own presuppositions into what's being said. And you can see kind of what they're saying, but it really comes out wrong. So I'm going to try to explain this as best I can in the couple of minutes that we have left. Okay. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Okay. So might be fulfilled is our first verb that we're looking at, or um, a verbal, we might say. But it is a verb. It's an aorist, passive, subjunctive. That means something to a few of you, but um, probably not to most, okay. Because you don't have to be a a Greek scholar or a Greek to know Greek to understand the Bible. You'll understand it in just a moment, you know. Okay. It's an aorist. Aorist is very common. That's, that's something the verbs are in the aorist tense a lot. And so, you know, that's not as important, but basically it's something that was done. It doesn't have to be. It can have present connotations to it, but it's usually something that was done that may still have present connotations. It's an aorist, but I'll tell you what is important. Might be fulfilled is passive. It's passive. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, it is. it means it's not something that we're doing. It's something that's been done to us. It's passive, okay? We have the passive tense, same thing in English. And not only is it passive, so it says might be fulfilled. It's in the subjunctive, which is a lot harder for us in English to understand. But simply put, and you can look it up later and Greek helps prove me right, I hope, <laughs> not prove me wrong, but the subjunct- this is what we call a purpose clause. The subjunctive often works that way. There's a purpose here. And so we could read this wrong and say that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Maybe it will. Or maybe it won't. That, that is not what it means. And so to think that it means that is to get it absolutely wrong. No. That the the purpose, the righteous requirement of the law, the purpose of it might be fulfilled in us. Okay. Talking about us, talking about Christians, you know. And so it's vital. And, and just look down at verse number 9, if you would. Uh, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay. So, verse 4 and verse 9 are actually companion verses. We're not going to make it there. We're going to end in verse 4 today. But that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and there's the passive aspect of it, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. Now it's given in the negative, but um, this is also important too, because of what it means. Okay. It's, it's active. You know, this is, this is active here. Do not walk is a present active participle. So it's a verbal, okay? And it applies, even though it doesn't say it directly, uh, but uh, the positive is also true. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Y- you don't do any damage by seeing that it means that. In fact, you'd do damage if you didn't understand that. Okay. So what we do is we walk in the spirit. And that is active. It's present, and the Greek present tense is a continuous tense. So we are walking and we continue to walk in the spirit. And it's a participle which uh, has that whole idea of continuing behind it. Okay. So very simple. Very simple. God has done something for us, and now we can do something. Okay? We can walk in the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit. In fact, if you don't walk in the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Simple as that. You don't have the Spirit. What's the what verse 9 say? But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's why I say verse 9 is companion to verse 4. Okay, do we walk in In the spirit constantly? Well, we would negate Romans chapter 7, would we? Would we not? But this is what we do. It's what we are to do. It's what we're supposed to do. It's what we want to do. It's the goal. What God has done for us is not up to any kind of debate. Okay? You know, that's not up to any kind of debate because it's in the passive. It's what He has done for us. And because of what He's done for us, this is what we do. And this has brought us to sanctification, where we have responsibilities, where we're to use the means of grace, where we're to look to Christ and fresh look to Christ daily. You know, read the Scriptures, attend to the means of grace, worship together on the Lord's Day. Prayer, vital is, prayer is just vital to the Christian. Prayer is the breath of a Christian. Again, we can dare say that if you never pray, you don't know Him. If you never pray, you don't know Him because prayer is vital to the Christian. Do you pray as much as you want to pray? Do you pray as fervently as you want to pray? Do you pray and never become distracted, and your mind never wanders, and and you don't find yourself maybe even falling asleep? The flesh is weak. All those things happen to us. But a Christian is known, he's praying. Because that's what Christians do. They pray. Lost friend, I'll just say this. I'll conclude with this. I can't put into words how wonderful it is to be a Christian. I cannot begin to tell you the present and eternal joys for those that know Christ. All I can do is just ask you, do you know him? Most people don't. Most people in this world don't know him. Most people muddle through this world and muddle into eternity alone, without God, without Christ, and without hope. But there was a 90 year old woman that died. And she could hardly say a word. And it had been that way for a year. Hardly say a word. Almost like a shell, but there, was, there wasn't a shell, she was still in there. And as she was dying, and given the promise, we'll see you again, even though we we're going to be gone for a week in Tennessee, <laughs> given the promise, we'll see you again. She says, yeah. She didn't say yeah, but she said, heaven. What a great hope. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord. We thank you there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan would have us to believe that we are blowing it all the time and making God angry with ourselves all of the time. And maybe he's going to turn his love away and turn his heart away and we'll be thrown into the refuge deep of, of hell. Father, such is not the case he loves us he loves he really does love his people we thank you for that and lord we love him all of his people love him and we desire to serve him we desire to do what is right because he has given us a new heart a new life if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Christ Jesus the lord i'm speaking a foreign language But Lord, would you convict them of their sin? Would you show them there's a remedy for their sin? And would they turn to the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ? And then they too, just as we can confess, He's a a great God, a great Savior, and a, a wonderful, wonderful, loving Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.